Sanchez, senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, uh, thanks for sticking with us. We now have an, an excellent expert panel to uh, dig into some of the issues that Congressman Chafin has uh, touched on in his, uh, his opening. Uh, so let me uh, just very briefly introduce our panel. I know you all have smartphones. You can probably look up more detail if you are intensely curious about the background of our panelists. Um, but uh, just very briefly, to my immediate left is my colleague Adam Bates, a policy analyst uh, in, a, in our project on criminal justice, who is the author of a recent uh, report, Stingray, A New Frontier in Police Surveillance, from which I have shamelessly stolen uh, the title for today's event. Uh, to his left is uh, Anima Singh uh, Guliani from a Legislative Council of the American Civil Liberties Union, with whom I've had the uh, privilege to collaborate for some years on uh, a wide range of surveillance and privacy issues. Uh, she is uh, a specialist, again, on surveillance, uh, but also uh, previously was an investigative counsel for uh, the committee, uh, House Committee on uh, Oversight and Government Reform, uh, and has also worked in the Office of the Chief of Staff at the Department of Homeland Security, so she's uh, covered, covered the bases, both uh, inside and outside government. Uh, to my right is uh, Jonathan Rudenberg, who is a uh, security researcher uh, and the uh, co-founder of a technology startup called Flynn, no relation to uh, the fellow who's been in the news recently. It is a, a company that... Uh, makes an application that is essentially a, a tool for app developers to make their uh, job easier, um, and also is engaged in a, a freedom of information lawsuit with uh, Delaware's police over uh, transparency around uh, their use of stingrays. Uh, and uh, to his right, Laura Moy, who is the deputy director of the uh, Georgetown Law uh, Center on Privacy and Technology, uh, formerly a senior privacy counsel at the Open Technology Institute of the New America Foundation, uh, and also uh, uh, responsible for filing a uh, complaint with the Federal Communications uh, Commission. This is an, uh, an angle sort of totally unexplored, um, arguing that the unlicensed use of uh, stingrays, which are basically devices that involve gathering up uh, radio signals, um, is uh, not consistent with federal policy. And so that'll be an interesting angle that we'll have a chance to explore. Um, but I, and I know this is out of fashion in 2017. I have the, I'm of the, the, uh, the quaint opinion that it's always good to start a conversation with uh, facts. Um, I know, it's crazy. But, um, but for that reason, it seems like before we dive into the policy issues, uh, we may want to begin with uh, a little bit more detail about how these devices we've been, uh, we've been discussing uh, all along uh, work in a little bit more detail. Uh, very often, the sort of policy and legal questions turn on sometimes subtle uh, uh, issues of technology. So uh, I want to sort of start with Jonathan and ask us if you can give us a kind of um, you know, stingrays for dummies or uh, cell site simulators for dummies briefing. Sure. OK. So a cell site simulator is a dragnet surveillance device. Um, Stingray is a specific brand, and it's typically used generically now because it's just much easier to say than cell site simulator. Um, it pre pretends to be a cell phone tower. So instead of connecting to your telephone carrier's cell phone tower, all cell phones in the vicinity of a Stingray connect to the Stingray. And it does this by pretending to be the phone carrier. And it tricks all the phones around it into connecting to it by exploiting secu known security flaws in the uh, cell car carrier's networks. And then uh, it can get the serial number from the phone, which can be used uh, to figure out which phone uh, you're looking for. It can uh, also uh, see everything that is being sent and received by all phones that are connected to it. 
So in theory, the content of any communications being transmitted by these phones could be intercepted by a stingray. Typically, it's just used for things like uh, locating suspects. So for example, uh, you may have a serial number as law enforcement for a phone, and you want to find the suspect with that phone. You would deploy the stingray in the area you believe the suspect is located, and then it would help you triangulate the location of that suspect. The uh, interesting thing about them is that it's not particular. So it will search literally every phone in the vicinity by convincing them to connect to it. Uh, that's pretty much the general gist. I don't know if you follow up. I mean, what are the, the reasons for doing this instead of going through uh, the carriers? It seems like a, an unnecessarily broad uh, collection to go through if you could approach AT&T and say, can you tell us where uh, that number is? Yeah, I think it's because it's, um, it's faster. So you can deploy it much quicker uh, and it's portable. So you, there's just one less layer of intermediation between the information that they're looking for. There is no technical reason why AT&T can't locate a phone, but it may not be as specific and so on. Right. And one of the things you know, we were discussing just in the green room before this is that um, in a way, in addition to a policy question, this is a, a, a technical security question. Um, that's to say, is, is there any reason that the phone needs to be designed to be trackable this way? Um, could the, what, what changes could be made um, at a technical level to simply render that kind of tracking uh, infeasible? Yeah, so as I've said, it's a known security flaw in the networks, um, which means that it's not just law enforcement that can exploit it. So for example, uh, you can, using off-the-shelf hardware and software, build a device similar to a Stingray, plug a radio into a laptop, and anyone can do this. So it is actually a security flaw that could be fixed. Um, and there is no reason why locating a cell phone shouldn't be limited just to the telephone carrier as opposed to anyone who can put the right radio hardware and software together. Uh, Actually, sort of, I guess, segue to, to Laura, since we're talking about some of the technical details uh, of this. Um, you have some concerns about the potential for uh, interference with, with other legitimate uses of radio waves. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your advocacy around the complaint that you filed with the FCC? What's the, what are the issues you've raised? Okay, yeah, great. So, thank you. So, um, so just dovetailing on, uh, on what Jonathan was saying, uh, Stingray masquerades as a cell phone tower, although it is not one. So um, it's, it is designed to interfere with normal operation of the cell phone network. That is what it was designed to do, and that's what it does. It forces phones in the area to connect to it instead of to the actual legitimate network. Um, now, the, the agency, the federal agency that is responsible for ensuring that wireless spectrum is used in a way, in the way that it was intended, is the Federal Communications Commission. So the basis of our complaint uh, that we filed, it's, a, it's an informal complaint that I filed on behalf of three clients last year, um, the Center for Media Justice, Color of Change, and New America's Open Technology Institute. The basis of our complaints is that police departments operating these devices are operating them without the appropriate license to use the licensed spectrum over which the device transmits. So. Um, I think you know if you've if you've read the Cato report or if you've if you've read other other works on this issue, this might be confusing because uh, you may know already that the FCC does issue equipment authorization for the equipment that is sold. Um, but there are two types of authorization that are that are necessary to operate a stingray. One is that you, in order to 
that the, the equipment itself has to be has to have gone through the equipment authorization process at the FCC essentially to um, to ensure that the equipment does what the manufacturer says it does before they can sell it to people for use. But the other authorization that is necessary is again spectrum authorization. Um, there are some bands of radio frequency that, uh, that we can transmit over without a license. That's unlicensed spectrum. Um, so that's what most of your home devices that, that transmit over, that use radio frequency um, uh, operate in. So um, that's what Wi-Fi, the space that Wi-Fi routers operate in. Um, but then there are other radio frequency bands where a license is necessary, so that's like licensed radio stations, licensed television stations, um, licensed uh, phone operators, and uh, and and all of the uh, licensed spectrum that is designated for cellular use has already been licensed to cellular phone companies. Um, as far as we know, there are no uh, police departments that are operating these devices that are operating these fake cell phone towers who have licenses to transmit in that license spectrum that has already been licensed to phone carriers. So the basis of our complaint was to say, hey, uh, so it turns out that police departments around the country, by operating these devices, they are not exempt from the requirements that, um, that, that, license that they have uh, authorization to use the license spectrum. So it turns out they are in violation of two sections of the Communications Act, um, one that requires the them to get a license, and the and the other that uh, that prohibits willful interference with operation of uh, of the network. So, um, and and then and just to expound on that for for a moment, um, there is a uh, it's it's uh, as you know as I think Jonathan has said and, and others have said, uh, Representative Chaffetz said, use of these devices is so shrouded in secrecy, it's really difficult to know to what extent the interference is, is occurring and what that interference looks like. But we have learned from um, from police representatives themselves in court testimony that the devices can cause calls to drop. Uh, they can uh, make it impossible to complete calls during the time that they are in use. Um, and and once they lock on to a particular device, once they you know the stingray finds the phone that the that the police department is looking for and, and locks onto it, um, one function that they have is to force the phone to uh, to respond to the stingray at full power. And 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 when they do that, it can cause phone batteries to drain faster as well. Um, and then of course there are anecdotal and, uh, and, and unverified reports uh, from protesters around the country who have said, yeah, we've seen this happening. Um, it's, again, it's really difficult to tell because um, uh, there are also instances where, um, where calls may drop or be impossible to complete because of, of crowded situations. Um, but, but that was also part of, uh, part of the complaint. And then the, the final part of the complaint uh, was to point out that, that to the extent that police departments use these devices um, in areas where they are active, and uh, to the extent that police departments are disproportionately active in communities of color around the country, um, uh, particularly in Baltimore, where our complaint was based, uh, and there is a, you know, a, a demonstrated history of, of racially discriminatory policing in Baltimore, then any harms caused by use of the devices, like interference with the with the phone network, are occurring disproportionately in communities of color. Um, so that's that's the the complaint in a nutshell. And where does that? Before I turn to uh, Adam and Nima, where does that stand now? 
So we uh, we had a. I, I think the best the best thing I can say about it is that it stands uh, somewhat in limbo given the transition right now that that uh, that we all have been paying a lot of attention a lot of attention to in the news. Um, we had some meetings with uh, with various offices at the at the FCC last year to discuss the the complaints and um, and to follow up with additional information. I know ACLU and the New York Civil Liberties Union and, and some of the local ACLUs also filed a, a supportive filing um, uh, following up on our complaints. Um, but, uh, but right now, we're not sure. And we're hopeful, we're hopeful though, that the new FCC will take a, a hard look at this issue, um, particularly given uh, some, of, some of the Republican commissioners' statements on, um, on their interest in privacy and security. So you mentioned the secrecy in which the usage is shrouded. One of the most remarkable things about uh, this technology is how vigorously uh, the users of it and the companies that create it have, um, have really fought uh, efforts to generate greater transparency around uh, the use of these devices. And this is something that is uh, both uh, a focus of, uh, of Adam's report and a focus of uh, the ACLU's action uh, to attempt to dislodge a little bit more information. Uh, why don't I, I guess, start with Adam and, and um, uh, because I, I was sort of fascinated by some of the stories in your report of, of you know, criminals essentially being uh, allowed to go free because the um, government didn't want to provide information about stingrays. Can you uh, outline uh, some of those cases for us? Sure. So uh, as uh, Congressman Chaffetz mentioned, uh, there, when a state or local law enforcement agency uh, tries to acquire a Stingray device, they are required uh, by FCC regulations to coordinate that transfer with the FBI. Uh, the FBI then has taken that uh, coordination authority and produced a non-disclosure, what they call a non-disclosure agreement, uh, that it, uh, any law enforcement agency that gets a Stingray has to agree to the terms of this non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and one of the explicit terms of the non-disclosure agreement is that the, the agency acquiring the Stingray will not disclose information about the Stingray, not its existence, not its technological capabilities, not its use, uh, and not just not to the public, but not to courts, not to defense attorneys, not to legislators. Uh, and it also gives explicitly the power to the FBI to require that state and local law enforcement agencies or prosecutor's offices uh, can be ordered to drop prosecutions. If, if, it, if a defense attorney gets wind that a Stingray device is being used, uh, the FBI can force them to withdraw that evidence or, uh, up to and including dropping the entire case. Uh, and so there was a case in Tallahassee a few years ago where uh, a couple of morons essentially decided to rob uh, a drug dealer. They set up a drug deal. Uh, they robbed the drug dealer with BB guns, which under Florida law were still considered firearms, despite the fact they weren't actually firearms. Uh, and police, unbeknownst to them at the time, police used a Stingray device to track down uh, the location of the cell phone that they had stolen. And when they went to court and were facing aggravated armed robbery charges that could have resulted in years, decades in prison, uh, a wary defense attorney started wondering how the police managed to find uh, her clients. And when she pursued that line of, of questioning with the police, they started saying bizarre things like, well, that's a matter of national security. We can't go into that. Uh, and judges don't like uh, being told that they can't see evidence in a criminal case because it's a secret. Uh, so basically, uh, the, the prosecution was forced to withdraw that evidence, and instead of pursuing that case, they came up with a sweetheart plea deal uh, where the, the people would just get probation, uh, just probation, no jail time, and they would go home today. 
Uh, and that's what happened in that case. So you have a case where these people are accused of a violent crime and for all intents and purposes seem very guilty of that crime considering they were caught uh, with the drugs and the money and the cell phone. Uh, but they, they get to walk free in order to, to protect uh, the secrecy of this device. And if you just read the non-disclosure agreement and the background on Stingrays, it, it becomes clear that that is intentional. That, that is considered, uh, a, the, the federal government is willing to have that happen in order to protect the secrecy of these devices. Well, this is very extraordinary. I think as a federal law enforcement intervening to demand the release of criminals, um, I guess to protect the uh, technology that keeps us safe. Um, you mentioned Tallahassee. The ECLU has had some uh, experience uh, there as well, as I recall. Yes, I mean, as, as part of our work on stingrays, um, we send FOIA requests to departments across the country. And I think that, you know, consistent with what Adam said, the results and what we learned from these FOIAs was really disturbing. Um, you know, just taking a step back, but before I go into some of the specifics we found, was I think that this is part of a disturbing trend in law enforcement when it comes to surveillance. I mean, what we are increasingly seeing is law enforcement officials purchasing new technologies, deploying them into communities, um, and thinking about the privacy and civil liberties implications after the fact, and only after there has been a lot of work to uncover um, and, and remove the, the secrecy around it. Um, you know, like Adam mentioned, there was a deliberate attempt by the DOJ to hide the use of these technologies. Hide the use of these technologies from communities who may have been impacted in terms of how they use technology and their ability to, to frankly make a phone call. Um, hid the use of these technologies from courts, um, and hid the use of these technologies even from members of Congress who were asking really important questions. Um, just to give you an example of, of what we found in, in some of our FOIA requests, um, we found emails that were from Department of Justice officials to individuals um, at a local level um, requesting that information from stingrays be referred to as information from a confidential source. Um, and the idea was to deliberately mask how the information was collected and undermine the ability of people to challenge um, the use of the stingrays as unconstitutional. Um, second, um, you know, as Adam mentioned, we found um, communications from DOJ to localities asking them um, to drop cases um, you know, in situations where they were concerned um, that um, the information about these devices would get out. Um, there's actually a really great striking monologue that happened between um, a judge in Maryland and a, a local attorney where you know, the judge was asking questions and the attorney said, I'm sorry, I can't answer those questions. I've signed a non-disclosure agreement with the, with the FBI. And the judge said, well, you didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement with me. Right? Um, that just shows you, I think, how embedded the secrecy had become. Um, and I think just you know, another layer of that has also been defendants are not getting notice about how these devices are collected. Um, and after there were you know, news stories, after there were some of these investigations, you had um, public defenders in Maryland start to go through old cases and they think, you know, we could have hundreds of cases where our clients were affected and we had no idea that this is how the information is obtained and we were not able to raise constitutional challenges in courts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this level of secrecy, I think, is indicative of a larger trend where law enforcement are purchasing these technologies and local communities and legislatures are not having the opportunity to weigh in. Um, and that's why one of the initiatives that the ACLU has been pushing more recently and has partnered with you know, a variety of organizations and, and states and localities is to push states and localities to pass legislation that essentially says, 
If you want to use a new surveillance technology, it has to go through the legislative approval process. There has to be transparency. There has to be accountability. We as, a, as communities should discuss what protections should apply to these technologies before they're deployed willy-nilly. And we're sort of in this game where a decade after the fact, we're trying to put the brakes on something that has damaged people already. And just because it's such an extraordinary incident, was it one of the ACL use cases where the federal marshals actually recovered uh, uh, files from local law enforcement? There were cases like that. There, I mean, there's so many examples of how the DOJ has really interfered um, with states and localities or directed them to hide these things that, that it is striking. And the only conclusion you can draw is that it was deliberate, it was intentional, um, and the effects are clear. So this was, uh, the case you mentioned was reported in Wired that, uh, I, I believe it was an ACLU uh, Freedom of Information litigation in Florida, in Sarasota, uh, to, to get access to the information that the Sarasota police were using Stingray devices. The judge granted the request, but before the information could actually be turned over to the ACLU, the U.S. Marshal's Office literally physically went to the Sarasota Sheriff's Office and took the information and said, this is federal, this is federal property, not state property property, you cannot comply, and essentially it was a raid on the Sarasota police by the U.S. Marshal Service. That's, which, again, I, I find extraordinary. Um, and uh, you know, so I, I, I should note at this point, I think, that we did invite uh, uh, representatives from law enforcement from the Baltimore Police Department to, um, to come in. I, uh, they were unable to, uh, to send someone, but so I would like to ask them what, what's, what's going on. Um, but I, I'll turn, I suppose, to, to uh, Jonathan. Um, you know, as someone else who's been struggling with uh, uh, refusal of uh, local officials to turn over data about this, um, I mean, does this, is there any kind of conceivable technical rationale for being so resistant to uh, providing any kind of information about how these devices work? I can't come up with a good explanation for withholding any of this information. Um, there, the existence of the devices is known. The way they work is known. Um, the way they're used is known. And even if none of that was known, there is nothing that knowing that right. uh, like stops. Like there is, these devices do not become less effective because people know about them. Right. So it's not, and, it's not like if I and, know the details, yeah. I can know. I'll just and, but not only, yeah, change exactly. the settings. But not only that, there are like law enforcement uh, uses many tools, and there is no reason for them to have secret capabilities. That is, like, fundamentally, it just doesn't work with our system of government for law enforcement to have secret capabilities because there is no way to have oversight when we have secret capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so, I guess, let's say something about the status of your, your request. You, you filed a FOIA request with, with uh, Delaware State Police, and they essentially have said, no, we have a non-disclosure agreement. Um, is, there, is there a reason the companies are imposing these uh, so seriously? What is their explanation to you? So, um, yeah, I filed a FOIA request in um, 2015, and it was originally denied because they claimed that the NDA with the FBI that they were required to sign when they acquired the devices overrode the FOIA law in Delaware, uh, which we don't believe to be the case. It, does, it doesn't seem like you should be able to sign a contract that overrides a freedom of information law. Um, and so, very convenient if I could just yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, uh, so they have been uh, trying to withhold information. I'm currently involved in litigation to try to get that information about the devices they have, how they purchased them, and um, how they're using them. And uh, so, there will be uh, an oral hearing at the end of the month about that. Right. Uh, and then I guess let me turn back to uh, Nima. Um, 
so you have a number of cases ongoing trying to extract information. Can you uh, give us a kind of quick survey of, of if there are any where you are, have high hopes of getting uh, more information in the, in the near term? Or, um, or what are sort of the, the key things you've discovered and what, where, where are your, your prospects particularly good for uh, dislodging some more morsels of, of data? Sure. I mean, as a result of um, you know a lot of the work that that we and others have done over the years, I think one thing be has become very clear, and that's that the policies around how these devices are used is extremely spotty. Right? You had jurisdictions that um, were not getting uh, a warrant before they deployed these devices. Um, you had wildly different policies when it came to retention of information. Some localities not even having those policies to begin with. Um, and from a, a, not, uh, a notice standpoint and, you know, in terms of meeting the Fourth Amendment obligation to provide notice to criminal defendants about how evidence obtained in their trial was um, collected, we also saw that, that states and localities were not meeting that obligation. Um, and so we've had a handful of cases um, that have, um, where we have been able to, to demonstrate um, that this is how the information was collected and, and challenge that use. Um, the cases that have been affirmatively decided have um, said that a warrant is required before you can deploy a Stingray. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to emphasize that it's, it's important to have these cases. It is great to have judges weigh in. Um, what we really need, though, is a law and policy in place at a national level. Um, we need that in place to address the, the spotty policies. Um, and frankly, there are issues surrounding Stingrays that are, that are broader than some of the questions that the courts are addressing. So for example, I think a very important question is, do we want these devices used at all you know, in certain cases? You know, as, as you know, many of our panelists have discussed, the way the devices work is by collecting the information of everybody in range. You know, and it's, I think, a policy question to say, you know, in a minor crime, jaywalking, do we really want this device deployed to collect everybody's information, or do we want it reserved, you know, perhaps for the, the most serious of crimes and emergencies, or perhaps not at all? Um, two, you know, do we want to address concerns around protests, right? I mean, we've been hearing complaints. Protests are saying, I think these devices are being used, um, but we don't really know. It's really hard to prove. Do we need special enhanced protections to make sure that the devices are not interfering with, with First Amendment protected activities? Um, and finally, I think in the, around those same lines, I mean, do we want to limit where these devices can be used? You know, do we want the law enforcement to be able to discern if someone is at an abortion clinic, at a place of worship, at an alcohol Holics Anonymous meeting. I mean, these are all very sensitive locations where people have, you know, enhanced expectations of privacy, um, and the use of these technologies really guts that. Um, and so I, I think that the court cases that have been ongoing have been positive in terms of their conclusions, but they don't answer the full range of questions that I think we need to talk about when it comes to stingrays. I think it's worth noting, right, there, there are, because conceptually we can think of two different kinds of uses of a technology like this um, that are analogous to, to techniques that are used um, uh, by getting information directly from, from carriers, right? There's the scenario where we have a particular suspect, we would like to know where the suspect went so we can discover whether he was at the crime scene or whether his alibi is accurate or, or, or whatever. Um, uh, but there's also uh, a practice known as getting tower dumps. Um, that has become somewhat more popular. It's still fairly rare, but the idea is we don't have a suspect. We know there were a series of crimes, so what we want to do is find everyone who was near the crime and then see if there's someone who was with all, all of them. And it was a, a, t a technique that was used a few years ago in Texas, uh, for as far as I can tell the first time. Um, do we have a sense, so we, know, we know some of the uses of this technology involve you know, kind of airborne sucking up of data that doesn't seem to really be about are we triangulating the, the location of a particular person? Um, do we have any kind of visibility 
into um, you know, the, the relative preponderance of really to target-based, we're tracking a particular suspect versus kind of sweeping, we're looking for, but we're trying to figure out who might be a suspect by looking at everyone. Uh, Whoever so, wants. well, I mean, as you, as you may have gotten the, the idea, uh, a lot of the information we do have about stingrays has come from litigation and from criminal trials. And so the problem is it, it's reasonable to believe that that is a very small sliver of, of the total use of these devices. But those are the ones that we, we end up with a paper trail. We end up with uh, testimony in court. Uh, uh, Representative Chaffetz mentioned the surveillance flights uh, that the FBI was conducting where it's, it's assumed that they were using Stingray devices, which you may be, they're sometimes referred to as dirt boxes when they're attached to airplanes. Uh, and that was discovered, if I recall correctly, by some guy laying in his backyard and seeing the airplane and then looking up uh, the, the, the uh, registration of the airplane. Uh, but so as far as uh, surveillance on protests, surveillance on mosques, for instance, uh, we still don't have, we just don't have access to that information. And as Nima mentioned, a lot of Stingray uh, procurement is not going through state and local legislatures. They're not going through the normal appropriations process. So there are a lot of, it is perfectly reasonable to assume there are, are dozens of these devices being operated uh, in states and by police departments where nobody in that state except the police department even knows that they have the devices. So I think we're still at the, the tip of the iceberg stage as far as understanding the full uh, range of uses right now. The dirt boxes are, oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, I was just gonna add, I think it's important also to emphasize that you know, newer versions of the technology are potentially much more invasive, right? There are new developments where stingrays can be used to intercept content of calls and of text messages. Um, again, we don't know if departments are using this or not, but you know, in some respects, you know, stingrays are not new and cool. They're decades old. We're going to see new iterations, and we're going to see other technologies that come out that are much more invasive. And, and like Adam said, we just don't have the transparency to make sure that communities have the opportunity to weigh in. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to just underscore this this lack of oversight problem that keeps coming up, coming up over and over again on our panel, right? I mean, there, so Nima is is uh, is you know highlighting both the lack of judicial oversight and the and the lack of legislative oversight. You know, I mean, we yeah we need we desperately need judicial oversight. We need you know these non disclosure agreements uh, prevent judicial oversight from taking place. We desperately need. Uh, judicial oversight to ensure that we are properly weighing um, the the privacy interests of, of individuals against the you know the what could be an unreasonable search. Um, we desperately need legislative oversight or or public oversight so that we can ensure that the policies that govern deployment of these devices in individual communities are consistent with what the people of the community want the police to be doing with the devices and what they want to be done with their with the with their funds. Uh, quite frankly, um, since we know you know and and, and uh, Adam and uh, highlighted this in, in his report, I know you know that that the that the oversight committee report highlight, highlighted this quite nicely. Um, these devices are incredibly expensive, and people are paying for their for their police departments to acquire them from private companies. Um, you know, and 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 then just to tie this back to the FCC point, we really need oversight from the agency that is that is intended to uh, protect the integrity of our phone network um, to ensure that we are properly weighing the public's you know whatever the public's interest may be in use of these devices to support crime fighting. 
uh, crime-fighting forces um, against the importance of, of having the phone network operate uh, consistently and reliably. Um, you know, I think in, in there was a report that came out last year, some, some, good, some good reporting from, from Canada um, that showed that a, a document filed in a Canadian court case um, indicated that according to tests done by Canadian police, uh, you know, the, the, uh, with the obvious caveat here that they may be using different devices, their network, uh, there might be network differences, um, but uh, the devices were not even passing through 911 calls that people were trying to make at the time that a stingray was deployed. So based on tests done by, uh, by Canadian police, if a stingray was deployed in the area and an individual in the vicinity um, of the stingray attempted to place a, a call to what I actually can't remember is not actually 911, but it's the, 911. Then that call was only, was only actually going through, uh, I think, less than 50% of the time, right? So the devices are supposed to have the ability, um, they're supposed to have a a feature that ensures that, that calls to emergency services get passed through, um, but based on testing, and eh, maybe not, you know, or may, maybe it's not turned on, or maybe it doesn't work reliably, who knows. Uh, and as a result, there is now actually a policy in Canada that limits, I don't know if you, do you, I don't know if this is something that you know about, but that, but that limits the, the, um, uh, the, the, the length of time that a stingray can be active, uh, t I think, to three minutes or less at a time to ensure that 911 calls are not being blocked for, for a length of time uh, that is greater than that. But, you know, I mean, it, the, the overarching thing here with, you know, with, that we need oversight in all of these areas is that, uh, you know, the, the devices are being deliberately obscured, use of the devices and, and operation and, and their, oper uh, their, their capabilities are being deliberately obscured um, by the law enforcement uh, agencies that are using them. And, and we, we really need greater transparency um, at all levels so that we can ensure that we are weighing all of these important public interests against the interest of, of having devices like this support uh, what are, of course, important um, in some instances, uh, crime-fighting capabilities. Now you mentioned uh, questions about things like use at, at protests. I know this is something that the, uh, has been a concern raised specifically in, in connection with the Baltimore Police Department. You said your, your mm -hmm. complaint was filed with color of change. Uh, I'm wondering, one, if there's stuff we know from documents about the use at protests in particular, it seems like perhaps the most obviously kind of questionable and concerning uh, deployment of a technology like this, but also whether uh, maybe there's uh, a place technology can come to the rescue. Uh, I always sort of, if you have a choice between counting on technology and counting on policy, I usually prefer to count on the technology when, you, when, when it's available. Um, is there, are there ways to uh, look for signs that a stingray is being used in a, in a particular space? like at a public protest. Can you describe how that might work? There are ways of detecting stingrays in some cases. Um, it's tricky, and um, there is there's no like silver bullet there. I think the, the better option is to, to look at this from the perspective of how do we prevent this from happening in the first place from a technical perspective. And the way we can do that is we can strongly encourage the telephone carriers to fix their networks they are not insecure. Because these devices are exploiting known security vulnerabilities that anyone can exploit in the networks. And I think that the telcos should fix that. There is no reason why stingrays should work in the first place. 
accept that there are these known vulnerabilities that they're using. And so this is something that Congressman Chavis mentioned as well. Um, are there cases we know about of, and I think actually his report even mentions that there you see sort of on Alibaba, you can, you can buy one of these if you, uh, if you want. Um, do, we have, uh, do we have a sense of, so someone apparently is buying them, so someone is selling these things online. Do we have any sense of what the scope of uh, non-governmental use of these is? So there is another use that is governmental, but it's not the US government. Foreign mm -hmm. intelligence right. agencies use these, and I'm sure there are some deployed, maybe passively, mm -hmm. around, for instance, Washington, DC. Um, any hobbyist could build one of these if they put enough effort into it for under $1,000. And you can buy them online, as you mentioned, from various sources. Um, there is no reason to believe that non-governmental people don't have them. Right. Um, so, we, we, so it seems almost certain that if, you know, if a foreign intelligence agency is, uh, is using these, they've got to be They've got to be deploying them in DC. Um, well, and I think, you know, we don't know the exact number, but there has been reporting, right. um, especially in DC, where journalists who've had devices that, that can help, you know, determine whether stingrays are being used have essentially driven around DC mm -hmm. trying to figure out the answer to this question. Um, and one journalist found that there was a cluster of these devices being used around the Capitol, being around Tyson Square, where a lot of the co um, contractors operate, um, and being used around government spaces. Um, could be that they're U.S. government ones, could also be that they're foreign intelligence agencies um, or other bad actors who are trying to get sensitive information um, that is generally transmitted in these areas. So just to add sort of another data point to all of the, um, the good comments to say, you know, from a, even if you didn't care about privacy, from a national security standpoint, we should be concerned that this vulnerability exists. And we should also, I think, be asking the question of, why hasn't the government and the FCC told the public that this vulnerability has existed? Why haven't they encouraged them to use alternative forms of communication when they're talking about sensitive things so they can protect themselves? Why aren't our government officials who are you know, constantly um, communicating about very sensitive matters, they themselves potentially taking the right actions? You know, just purely from a national security standpoint, um, it is astounding that this hasn't been addressed. Mm -hmm. Actually, let me back up for a second from the sort of the Stingray specific question and, and, and throw that to the, the other panelists. I mean, do we have a sense of why, um, why is the cellular communication system we all depend on uh, daily to uh, you know, do all sorts of sensitive communication functions um, so terribly insecure? Um, what, what would, you know, if, if, if we wanted to address this from that point of view, what would we, uh, what would our, our sort of first moves be? What are the, the policy levers and what are the kind of technical levers to try and uh, improve that, that uh, situation? I can talk a little bit about policy levers. I mean, so the, the data, at least some of the data that, that these devices uh, can collect is, you um, uh, is metadata about, about one's use of the service, that falls under the definition of customer proprietary network information under the Communications Act, and um, also you know, called CPNI for short. And, and, and there, the Communications Act um, and the FCC's regulations do require uh, carriers to protect the privacy and security of CPNI. Uh, now, you know, of course, there are, um, there are exceptions in place for, for um, for law enforcement, uh, as there are with with most privacy laws, um, but you know, but I, I do think that there is there is some investigation that could be done there by by an, an agency with the will to do so um, to uh, to see if if phone carriers are in in fact 
um, compromising the privacy and security of their customer CPNI by um, by knowingly allowing vulnerabilities to exist in their network, um, you know, and if they are in fact collecting uh, court orders or, or or the like warrants from um, from police agencies um, at the time that police agencies deploy these devices on their network uh, to ensure that they are not um, unwittingly sharing their customers' CPNI without law enforcement authorization, court authorization. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like there are there are some things that an agency could do there. Um, and under under existing uh, privacy and security law, um, of course, that requires the the will to do that. And part of the you know one of the really big problems here that we keep coming back to is that it seems like everyone is just rolling over to allow the you know to to allow the the, the law enforcement agencies with you know with with the FBI at, at the at the lead here. Um, to deploy the devices as they see fit, uh, and and not exercising their their oversight uh, capabilities as they are uh, are permitted to do, and 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 indeed expected and and, and obligated to do by the public. Um, but as as for technical levers, I I'm I mean not sure. there is no technical reason why this can't be fixed. It's just about having enough will to actually do it, and the telcos doing it. It may require substantial technology changes. I'm not. Like intimately aware of the like exact technical details of the cellular networks, but I knew, do know a lot about security and crypto, and there is no reason why this couldn't be fixed. Is there? Is this one of these? I mean, very often, right? Security problems are uh, a sort of function of the need to maintain backwards compatibility, right? You need to have you. We've got the new, fancier, more secure thing, but we don't want to make everything, every older version that's still out there, suddenly break. Um, so we let it do something less secure when the old device needs to connect, but then all you need to do is pretend to be an old thing and you, you get the weaker security. Um, I mean, is that, is that part of the problem? It is a problem, um, but there, there is a world where we fix it for new devices and the old devices are still insecure, but we know that, and so you can switch to a new device that is secure. Right, but that that does. Sorry, if I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. Uh, it, that that does raise a, an interesting point here, also, which is that in conjunction with um, with using Stingray devices to collect information about uh, about folks' use of the network, um, some police departments were in the past, and I don't know what the current status is of this, but they were jamming three um, G networks, for example, to force phones to 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 operate over two G, which uh, which lacks. Um, some of the basic uh, security abilities that 3G does. I think now that we're in the in the world of LTE, I, I think things. Yeah, are that's a that's correct. The originally, is different, originally um, they there were devices that would jam or the stingrays would basically mm -hmm. prevent the 3G um, handshake, and so it would downgrade. Right. 2G is being phased out at this point, um, and so presumably they have come up with new and exciting ways to exploit 3G and 4G. But, but we're, that, yeah. we don't know how they're doing it. Right, and that was exploitation of exactly what you're talking about, Julian. It was exploitation of backwards compatibility um, uh, that was built into people's devices. Everyone was walking around with a phone that maybe could uh, engage in, in, you know, in, in two-way authentication with the network to, to, to protect the security to some extent, um, and would do that by default, but if forced to, would also operate on, on 2G. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, those, we won't have, our phones won't be able to do that anymore and won't be doing that. Um, but yeah, in the past, it has been. So I guess let's, since, since uh, we had we had a, a conversation with Davidson, maybe we should say something a little bit about the the um, policy changes going uh, that, that that may remedy this. Um, so I guess 
two things to look at. One is that the, the one happy side effect of the, uh, of the Oversight Committee's investigation was um, essentially getting the Justice Department to, to say, all right, we will at least not use these without a search warrant um, and develop guidelines uh, governing their use. Um, but uh, those are mere guidelines. Those could be changed anytime. Jeff Sessions could decide. I don't like those guidelines. Um, uh, and uh, you know, then there's the question of whether will legislative reform efforts go sort of far enough. What, um, so I guess one question is, what is good and bad in, uh, in the current rules that apply at the federal level? Are those a kind of model that you think it would be enough if we saw that applied uh, nationwide and that imposed on uh, uh, you know, local agencies that are using federal money to, to, to buy these devices? Um, and where do, the, where do those fall short? What, what, what more do we need um, than, than what's in either those guidelines or perhaps even uh, the legislation introduced by uh, by Representative Chaffetz. Uh, so the warrant requirement is a good thing, and I, I endorse that. I think the Constitution requires it. I think uh, uh, this, this could come about legislatively. It could come about uh, through litigation. The, the courts could impose uh, a warrant requirement, which, as Nima mentioned, uh, the courts so far that have actually taken this on the merits have, have seemed to gravitate toward uh, a warrant requirement. But as uh, Representative Chaffetz mentioned, that does require a bit of rethinking of our uh, kind of antiquated Fourth Amendment jurisprudence relating to reasonable expectation of privacy and the third-party doctrine. Uh, but uh, there's no obligation on legislators, uh, legislators to sit around and wait for the courts to say the Constitution requires this. Uh, the legislatures themselves could decide that the, the Constitution requires this. So I, I do endorse uh, definitely the warrant requirement, but as, as was mentioned, uh, A, these are just guidelines. So if these departments violate these, there, there's theoretically no problem with that. You get a, an admonition from, from the Attorney General, but there's no actual law behind this with any teeth. Uh, and these guidelines do not apply to state and local law enforcement, which uh, is, there are d uh, hundreds of these devices in use in state and local law enforcement. They're being used in thousands of cases. Uh, and they may have no requirements at all. They may not be getting court orders. They may be deceiving judges about the, the source of the information. Uh, so, so absolutely, I think in the absence of, of some kind of uh, Supreme Court constitutional rule that there is a warrant requirement, uh, this is something that's very important for state and local legislators to take up. And uh, going to the, the transparency issue, uh, a lot of state and local legislators do not know that this is going on in their jurisdiction because they didn't appropriate the money for it. They didn't authorize this. Uh, they may be funded through uh, federal terrorism grants, urban area security initiative, uh, things of that nature where you just have state and local law enforcement interacting directly with the federal government and not going through their local legislature. Uh, and then you could also have, the, there are situations like in Chicago where they were buying these devices with civil asset forfeiture funds, which are funds taken directly from uh, criminal suspects uh, and again, this is not money that's going through the appropriations process. This is the police taking the money, the police uh, interacting with the federal government. So it's important to get that kind of legislative oversight on the local level so they can uh, impose these kinds of rules. And it, they have to know there's a problem before they start addressing it. Do you have any? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, it's, it's important for us to talk about, you know, the DHS and DOJ guidance and, you know, the good parts and the bad parts and then what the solution is, right? So. You know, after journalists wrote about this issue, after dozens of representatives sent letters to the Department of Justice, after everyday people um, expressed concerns to their members about these devices, and a decade after they were actually being used, 
you had the DOJ and DHS issue guidance. Um, as Adam noted, I think a positive element of that guidance was um, a general um, requirement that a warrant be obtained before they're deployed. Um, what are the not so good parts? Um, first and foremost, there are exceptions to the warrant requirement. So in the guidance, um, you don't have to get a warrant if it's for a, an exceptional use. What does exceptional mean? I don't know, and I don't know that any members of Congress really have a grasp of that. Exceptional is not an emergency because there's already another carve out for emergencies. So we know that there are situations where law enforcement may not be getting a warrant when they use these devices. Um, the second issue, which Representative Chaffetz talked about, is you know, none of this affects states and localities, including states and localities who receive federal money. Um, it's kind of helpful, I think, to think about the absurdity of this situation, right? You have the FBI saying, well, I can force states and localities to sign non-disclosure agreements and not disclose information about these devices. But what I can't force them to do is, at a minimum, comply with federal guidance about how these devices should be used. Um, they have been pressed on this, and we still don't have the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security say, look, we are going to take steps to make sure that when we use federal dollars and we give federal dollars to purchase these devices, we are going to make sure that they're used consistent with the law. Um, the third thing that the guidance is you know, silent on is really fully addressing the secrecy problem. You know, notice to criminal defendants. When are defendants being provided notice so that we can start challenging these cases in court the way they should be challenged? Um, and you know, this is something we have raised with the Department of Justice, and we've raised it with the Department of Homeland Security. There is no mention of this issue in the guidance. And so that still remains a black hole uh, and potentially a huge problem. Um, so you know, I, I say this with a caveat. I think it's positive that we have a guidance. There are lots of holes in this guidance. And so what's the solution? You know, I think that you know, when we, we take a step back, we cannot be reliant on you know, individual single policies um, that only come about you know, years after a technology is deployed and after there's a substantial amount of interest from the public and members of Congress. We need, you know, in some senses, technology-neutral legislation on when the government can get your location information. Um, stingrays are out there. There are all kinds of ways the government can get your information. You know, we have Fitbits. We have phones. We have all kinds of technologies that potentially gather your location information. And today, the Department of Justice position is, in many cases, they don't need a warrant to get your historical location information. Going back eight months, going back nine months, they've taken the position that they don't need a warrant. Um, and that's simply not consistent with how most people think about their location privacy. You know, most people will say, I'm within three feet of my cell phone 99% of the time, and I'd really prefer that the government not know where I am at all times unless they have a warrant. Um, and so the GPS Act, which um, the representative um, is reintroducing today with um, some of his colleagues, I think is a, is a good first step to say, let's look at the information collected, let's put out a technology-neutral bill, but let's actually start addressing this problem instead of ignoring the fact that technology is moving at warp speed, and for whatever reason, we are still relying on laws that were you know, written before the internet and mobile phones were widely used. And we also have a policy wish list, uh, things that you would add to. Uh, so he's not here. We can we can say oh, I changed this if if, uh, if I had a magic wand. Uh, do you have any other kind of additional uh, items on the wish list, either from a, a policy level or or uh, I guess maybe uh, uh, a technical angle, uh, or that cover the bases? I guess we'll we then maybe ask a question about some of the um, the collective uses. Again, I think one of the things that is most concerning is the prospect for. Um, you know, not just tracking a suspect, but monitoring at a population scale. I know, uh, I think it was a few years ago, and I think it was Ukraine, 
um, and correct me if I'm remembering the country wrong, but uh, that, uh, where there were large-scale protests against the government and essentially everyone whose cell phone was registered as being in the location of the protest got a text message saying, you know, we know what you did last summer, basically. We know you were there, just FYI. Um, you know, the government is watching, don't do anything uh, naughty. Um, uh, so I, technically, I mean, um, is sort of the default that these will just uh, kind of scoop everything and then store all that data, or is it uh, standard for it to be sort of filtered out and tossed away once they've zeroed in on the particular phone they're interested in? So there's a couple types of standard deployments that we're aware of. Um, one is this dragnet mode where it is tricking all of the phones in the area to connect and then logging information about those phones, typically serial numbers, possibly communications. Um, there is another mode that we're aware of where if they know ahead of time what serial number they're looking for, it will basically, uh, the Stingray will tell each phone, no, I don't want to talk to you anymore if this, the serial number doesn't match. Uh, and so that would be like the targeted triangulation type deployment. That being said, we don't actually know what other modes or configurations are available, what the data retention is, and so on. Hmm. Um, there is definitely a, like this kind of process of elimination type deployment where you would do a dragnet in a specific location where you thought your suspect was, and then maybe a little later you think your suspect is in another location and you do a similar dragnet there, and then cross-reference which serial numbers you found. Okay. Um, and is there, I mean, so I guess uh, one, one thing that occurs to me sort of initially about this is it seems like maybe one of those switches is one that the standard, you know, uh, uh, model of this in use just probably shouldn't have. So that's to say, if we think the most legitimate use of this is we have a suspect, we've got a warrant to track one person, um, then maybe there should be devices with that mode and not the suck up everything mode. Um, how... So feasible is that? In some sense, it has to at least initially suck up everything to, because of how radio waves work. But um, is that an, is that a sort of a realistic technical option? To say controlling the the capa controlling at the device level the capabilities of the devices that are being deployed. I mean, it's possible. There is, like, like I said, we we believe there is this mode where it is just targeting a single cell phone. It is still doing a search of all other cell phones in the area because it's interrogating right. those phones and asking for information like the serial number. Um, so there is no technical reason why you couldn't limit it to that, but it would just be a technical limitation. The the technology right. is capable of doing quite a bit more than that. So you'd be, you would need a lot of transparency and oversight into the modes and configurations that were being deployed. Right. And, oh, sorry. Did you want to? Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, and the devices are, they, I mean, they are hardware with, with the software package on top, right? And so the hardware itself with the right, uh, with, with the right build on it ca is capable of, for example, intercepting communications as multiple um, members of this panel have, have mentioned, uh, although most police departments, uh, that, or I believe all that have spoken on the, on the topic, have disclaimed the ability to do that. Um, based on on what their specific device can do, um, you know, and 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 oftentimes the the acquisitions um, by police departments uh, are acquisitions for software upgrades, right? So you you can have an old 
uh, an old Stingray device and upgrade it with the capability to, you know, with like the Hailstorm package or whatever to operate um, on, an, on an LTE network, although the device when you originally purchased it could not do that because it predates that technology. Um, so yeah, so there are, of course, lots of, you know, lots of limitations that you could build in at that, uh, at that software level. We don't, we don't know if any of those are current options because nobody knows anything about the device's uh, capabilities and the way that they're marketed. Um, but but certainly uh, that that could be built in. Uh, but I will I will add the so the yeah I mean the reason for this the canvassing mode for the dragnet mode uh, uh, purportedly is you know is as as Jonathan was explaining you know you you think that someone is using um, a temporary number or something and you just want to locate that person and you know where they work and you know where they live but you're not sure you're not sure what their te current temporary number is. Um, how do you go about determining what their temporary number is? And this, I believe, in, in many areas is one of the main re reasons that law enforcement agents use it, uh, is to capture the phone numbers of individuals who are using temporary phones. Mm. Um, and it may explain part of why, uh, for example, the Baltimore City Police Department was using the device on average over 500 times a year um, in, a, in a period between 2008 and 2013, I think. So there's um, a point is basically burner burner trackers. Right, um, yeah. yeah the, but again, that, I mean, so, but, but that's, a, that's a use just, I guess, to, if, and correct me if I'm mm -hmm. I take you right. Um, if that is your, if, if your point, that is, is not to track a particular person, but to figure out which is the phone of all the ones uh, in, the, in, the, in the vicinity that is being used by your target, that sort of necessarily means uh, not just kind of ephemerally and initially, but for some longer period of time, sucking up a bunch of information about right. a bunch of phones for long enough to do the pattern analysis that lets you huh? pull that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and the data retention then, you know, the, the data retention limits are not determined by the device, but determined by the agency that has collected and stored that information, you know, the, the logs. Any more Cohn has a question? Um, uh, <laughs> yes. um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know. And 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 again. You know. We this just to bring it back to the you know the oversight and the balancing of interests question. We have to ask ourselves like, is it worth uh, enduring the you know the, the invasion of everyone's privacy, the potential you know uh, construction and maintenance of logs of of, of many individuals' location and movements, um, p potentially interference with with the phone network. Um, extending even to completion of emergency calls. Is it worth all of that to facilitate this type of use? Mm -hmm. And right now, we, the public, are, are finding it very difficult to, uh, to engage in um, improper weighing of those interests and, and, to, and to, you know, to, to submit our opinions um, because the, the, the secrecy in which these things are shrouded provides us no opportunity to do that. Did you have a... Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, on the, this, uh, you know, this point of, of how these devices are being used, you know, to try, try to find someone who may be using a number and law enforcement, you know, doesn't know that, it's reflected in the guidance, right? So in those circumstances, the data can be retained for 21 days. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is indicative of a larger trend we're seeing in law enforcement, which is a greater tolerance towards mass surveillance, right? A greater tolerance towards collecting information of lots of people, many of whom have never been charged with a crime, suspected of crime, individuals for whom law enforcement knows have no connection to a particular crime, um, having their information swept up under this idea that 
this is good for, for our communities and this is good for our law enforcement agents. And I think that we really have to start breaking down that assumption um, and talking about whether we really do want to have these types of technologies because there are all these other effects. Effects from you know, how technology is used in communities to whether people feel comfortable going to a protest. Um, and there's also very serious constitutional concerns that I think aren't being fully aired. You know, the idea of a general warrant was something the Fourth Amendment was designed to prohibit. And now you have these technologies that you know, effectively, in many senses, are basically general warrants. Um, and so I think we need to talk about you know, these mass surveillance technologies. And frankly, we don't measure the efficacy as much as we should. Um, we saw this in the NSA context, right? You have these mass surveillance programs. A lot of them never worked, right? And I think that the lack of examination of these important issues is a, re you know, is a result in part of the secrecy around them. And uh, so I guess before we turn to the audience, I wonder whether to, to the extent there might be limited cases where it's desirable to... to do something in the kind of pattern analysis sort of milieu of the, we don't know who it is, but um, we're hoping we can sort of detect it in the data. Um, how feasible or desirable would it be to say, we don't want the police in charge of that. We want uh, the carriers to be in charge of, of uh, because they've got the data anyway, at some level, or at least a lot of the data anyway. Uh, and the solution, in a sense, we adopted with respect to the 215 program is, um, hey, NSA doesn't need to collect all this data um, we can just find a way for make it feasible for the carriers to kind of turn over the limited, tiny subset of the data that they actually need. Um, is how, how feasible is that kind of solution, leaning on the carriers? And are there reasons to be sort of wary of, of, of making that relationship too cozy or cozier than it is? So, um, so one of the, I think that the, I believe that if you go through the carrier, then the solution, I think, is cell site location analysis, if I'm not mistaken. If so cell site, cell site location analysis is actually what I, what I did for the Manhattan DA's office before I went to law school. So I can tell you <laughs> a little bit about it. But, you know, I mean, in general, a cell, the, so what cell site location analysis would look like or cross-referencing the devices in the vicinity of two different towers would look like would be dependent in large part on the, on the region where you're operating and how densely packed the towers are um, and what their range is. is. Uh, um, so, you know, in a, in a rural area, uh, a, a cell might be, is, is going to be much larger. The towers are spaced much farther apart um, than in a densely populated urban area. So you, you can imagine different situations where it would be difficult to cross-reference the list of phones that are um, in the vicinity of two different towers. Uh, you know, I mean, not impossible. And certainly, there are studies that show, I, I can't remember if you have, I think, three cell sites for an individual, or then, then you can likely uh, identify that specific individual. So if you know where someone works, where they live, and where their child goes to school, for example, um, then by cell site location analysis, you, you may be able to, uh, you, you may well be able to determine which phone that uh, visits those three cell sites uh, is theirs, but the, but the cross-referencing between lists of two different towers, uh, just two points, might be more difficult than the cross-referencing of, of two different points with, with, when you're using a stingray. So the range of a stingray, I'm sorry, I neglected to mention this, is, uh, is supposedly, I think, 200 meters, which is a little bit smaller than a cell is going to be in most places. Any, did you have anything to augment that? or? Yeah, so the, the resolution of the data that you get from the telco is much lower right. in general. Um, 
which is not necessarily a bad thing. But uh, for the purposes of law enforcement, that is why they are using right. stingrays. Um, yeah. So. yeah. Did you feel a just, I, to one thing? I mean, I, I think the question you raise is whether you know can some of this be shifted on to yes. um, you know the carriers. I think a caution is that doesn't necessarily address your mass surveillance problem, mm -hmm. right? And and we saw this in the NSA context, right? It, it's you know potentially better to have the carrier turn over a small subset of data to the government as opposed to to give you know the government collecting everything, but it still doesn't return us to a world where. Unless you are suspected of a crime or the government has probable cause to believe that you have evidence that's relevant to a crime, um, that that's the only information that's turned over. Um, and I think that that is a fundamental problem with the technology, not just Stingrays, but also many of the other technologies that we've started to deploy. This is, I think, uh, opens the door to uh, kind of a, a much bigger picture. Uh, uh, Technology altering the privacy landscape question. Um, so before we get into dizzying heights, I want to I want to let the uh, the audience ask our panelists uh, some questions before we turn to uh, lunch. Uh, do we have our folks? Great. Uh, so yeah, uh, hands and uh, again, if you prefer, uh, give your name and affiliation, but please do uh, wait for the mic before uh, asking your question. So the folks at home will be able to hear you as well. Uh, I suppose let's start there since we have someone near the microphone. Okay. And if you want to direct your question to a specific panelist, of course, please oh, no do problem. identify Thank them. Thank you very much. My name is Don Allison. I appreciate the, uh, the conference and the information that you're providing. My question really is, with the focus on the actual devices as being the basis for the legislation that I believe has been put out in the past, at least has attempted to. I'm sorry, can you just hold the mic a little closer? closer? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. It helps no if problem. I actually point it towards myself. Um, the question really is with the emphasis going towards devices, the devices themselves that deal with the questions that would be answered by the uh, House committee there. The latest round of devices that you can buy are not devices, they are done by software-defined radio. And it is a capability, not a device. So I would have no problem appearing in court and being questioned, did I actually use a device to do this? Or what device did I use? I have used no devices whatsoever. I've actually used a capability that use a general purpose software and hardware with some very specific software thrown into it to emulate the hardware. And so I can still get around that. What I'm interested in is anybody's opinion here on you know, the, basically it's the switch between a hardware physical device that I need that I can track through procurement, that I can see who's buying what where, to a software capability that now looks at more of a general type of purchase contract or general type of capability that can in turn be used for this. Right. Yeah. I mean, also I'll say, just, I mean, legally speaking, I don't think it matters. I mean, so there's a lot of statutes. So for example, the pen register statute, which is used to get real time sort of dialing information, call or internet metadata. Um, refers because they used to, I mean, it's called a pen register because it used to literally be a device with a pen that would mark stuff down. Um, now, now there is, you know, a pen register is not really a device. It's a piece of code that runs on the uh, phone company's equipment. Um, I think the statute still talks about devices. Um, some of the statutes do. Um, it sort of doesn't matter. They recognize that the software is the device. Um, but you do raise a good point in terms of sort of tracking procurement. That is to say, it may just, and, and there again, um, the, uh, you know, I mean, you can track procurement of software licenses, um, but it may be that 
uh, is a little bit easier to get a sense of the scale of activity when you have a number of physical devices kind of that can need to be used one at a time as opposed to um, essentially code that can run on anything with a radio in it. But uh, maybe I should flip that to The software-defined radio is still a device. It's just right. a more generic device. Um, so the combination of the software and the hardware is doing this, and it could be used for other tasks. But in general, I, I don't find it likely that anyone would be acquiring a generic software-defined radio and then <coughs> software separately because of all the training and support contracts. And like there's, there's so much involved in the procurement of this that it seems unlikely that it's going to be split up. And even if it was, I don't think it really matters. Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what I've seen, like e even when, I, when there are, you know, software packages that deliver new capabilities to old hardware that departments have, I, I, I admittedly have looked at very few of the, uh, um, uh, I've looked at very few budget reports and, and, um, or requests, I guess, that, uh, that have included a, a line item for that. But it still looks like you know, software upgrade from Harris Corporation um, for purpose of you know, upgrading Stingray device. It still looks. It still looks something like that. You know. I mean. I guess. Then there, you're raising an interesting question, which, which I think, if I'm hearing it correctly, is something like, well, what if a police department just purchases a software-defined radio separately that you know, and does and do not disclose at the time that they allocate funds for that purpose that the reason that they're purchasing a software-defined radio is so that it can it can be built. You know, they can they can use, deploy it as a cell site simulator. Um, I think you know there. I would have to think about this more, but it seems like if the device is capable of transmitting over. Um, even a software-defined radio, if the if the chipset and the I think even um, is capable of operating over the cellular network over spectrum that is uh, allocated for cellular use, I think that it would still need to go through equipment authorization as such at the FCC, and therefore uh, you know ought to have an equipment authorization as a device that can operate on that in that frequency range. And I think that therefore it would probably be subject to the same restrictions that have been you know that that Harris uh, has agreed to with the FCC, which is that the equipment that they've had authorized um, through the FCC for use as, as cell site simulators, uh, they have to certify will only be sold to law enforcement agencies. And there, you know, there's, there may be like some, some, some oversight still or some way to trace uh, acquisition of, of those uh, software-defined radios. But yeah, I mean, I also agree with Jonathan's point that it's, it's unlikely that the um, that acquisition of the radios would be completely divorced from uh, any product sold by a company that is recognizable like Harris. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, I think we have time to take one or two more. Uh, do we have any uh, additional? Thanks. Let's take uh, one at the, at the edges there. Uh, Jeffrey and Ross. I'm a criminologist at the University of Baltimore. Um, I, th I think that the moral, uh, ethical, and uh, civil liberties issues that you raised this morning are, are very important. Uh, however, uh, my question is, how are you going to convince the people of cities like Baltimore that have experienced close to 40 homicides this year that it's in their best interest to be concerned 
about the moral, ethical, and civil liberties issues connected to this technology. So again, this is, I, I do wish uh, Baltimore had been able to, uh, to send someone. That would be a great question for them. Um, <laughs> Uh, or at least they would be able to talk more, more, more convincingly about the particular utility of these devices, which of course are, you know, do have uh, 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 perfectly legitimate applications. I, although I don't, you know, I don't really think anyone is saying um, the use of tracking technology is, is sort of generically inappropriate or that, that when there's a, uh, a good reason there shouldn't be court-approved uh, you know, cell phone tracking when, when there's reason to think that it will help prevent violent crime. But uh, does anyone else want to sure. feel uh, that? So, so yeah, it, nothing in using these devices to catch a murderer uh, would be frustrated if they stopped deceiving judges about the nature of the devices, if they started disclosing the use of the devices to defense attorneys, if they got rid of the non-disclosure agreement that the FBI proffers, uh, if they were required to get a warrant before using the devices. I mean, these are the, the strictures we put on law enforcement in every other aspect of law enforcement to, to safeguard civil liberties uh, while still allowing law enforcement to do the, the legitimate aspects uh, of, of what they do. So uh, I, I think that would be a legitimate concern if the argument was geolocation tracking or cell phone tracking is just per se uh, unacceptable and we need to get rid of it. But uh, insofar as there are legitimate uses of these devices, it's the secrecy, the lack of accountability, the, the uh, hiding uh, the funding. Uh, that, those are the elements that make it impossible to, to protect our civil liberties in this situation. And there's no reason we couldn't uh, get rid of those problems and still have the devices to protect uh, or to ha serve legitimate law enforcement functions. Yeah, maybe I'll just pro provide, I think, a, a slightly different perspective. I, I do think that there are important constitutional questions about stingrays and mass surveillance generally. Um, you know, whether it works or doesn't work, I think that, that, that the Fourth Amendment and the Constitution provides that protection, and that's something courts should examine, and that's something that legislatures have to um, also look at. But I think, you know, you sort of hit the nail on the head. Even if we sort of accepted that, look, there are certain technologies or uses of the technology um, that under the proper circumstances with a warrant, with the appropriate cause, with good policies, are consistent with the Constitution, that's a decision for communities to make, and it's a decision that legislators should weigh in on, and that where you should have accountability, you should have public hearings, you should have the policy on the website. You know, for the life of me, I cannot think of a reason now when you have all of this information public about stingrays, why there are still some departments clinging to this idea that things should be secret and that communities shouldn't be able to weigh in. And I think that that's helpful for communities to say, you know what, we do want some of these things used because they have a law enforcement benefit, and we think that you know the effect on um, on you know technology or whatever is worth it. Or they may say, you know what, maybe the technology worked once, but it also blocked five nine one one calls, and we have people in our communities who have suffered harm and also very significant effects because of the way these technologies work. And so, so I, I say that you know I guess that my short answer to your question is how do we convince people? I think the Constitution you know is is one really um, strong level, and the second is talking about accountability and how these decisions shouldn't be made by one person in a back room in a police department. They're decisions that should be made by communities as a whole. Right, and, and if I, I agree with everything that's, that, that Nima has just said, but um, yeah, I think also it's pretty clear that people across the country are demanding greater accountability from their police departments, right? I mean, like, this is happening. People in communities across the country are protesting 
Um, you know, there have been massive protests uh, in, in Baltimore, um, you know, particularly in, in the wake of, of Freddie Gray's death, uh, you know, where it may well be the case that stingrays were used to monitor protesters. But, you know, I mean, there are many people who are uh, in their communities organizing right now, asking for greater accountability from their police departments, uh, showing up at town hall meetings and, and, and demanding better opportunities to engage um, in development of these policies. It's, I mean, it's, I think, you know, probably none of us up on this stage who work at the federal level are, are well positioned to say what tactics work at the community level to force that, those changes to actually happen to the extent they need to happen. Um, in some communities. I think what we can say is it would be really helpful to have uh, some, some legislation at the federal level or, or some, some policy making at the federal level uh, to help facilitate those types of interactions and to, to help seed uh, the, the greater accountability that, that, that communities across the country are calling for. And I guess we have time. We can do one more before uh, we retire to lunch. Let's, let's take one last one. Yeah, I'm Bill Klein, a retired uh, military physician. I have a question. Well, first of all, this whole arena is so complicated. I think ordinary people just simply don't understand it, so they default. But I can't see as an ordinary person much difference between this, which is a perfectly exquisite, clean, simple, extreme thing that you sort of can understand. It's so extreme. But when I go into a store and you have an app, and they greet you and meet you and give you coupons and track you and get data and know exactly where you are. I think that goes on. I don't particularly like that either, and it goes on and on. But there's a question behind all of this that I've wondered about for years, and that's the question of who owns the data. And, I've, and I'd be curious to know if any of you can answer some of this, either if it's ever been addressed, or why is there any special reason that anybody that collects information on me unless I'm committing a crime and I'm under investigation or something, but I suspect that's about one one-hundredth of one percent of this universe. Why don't I own the data they collect? And most of the time, I won't bother to do anything with it, but if I want, I can say to Google, uh, and it's technically possible now with computers, give me a record of every Google I've ever done. I know you're keeping it. I'd like to see my data that I've given you license to play with. And if the principle were there that I own all the data that exists in the entire world on me. Medical records are a perfect example. And I have a right to get to it if I want. Most of the time, I wouldn't bother. But if I had the right to, zealots and people who understand things like you, some of you would go after that stuff. And I think very quickly, any of the abuses would show up, as opposed to what it is now that there's this giant world out there where everybody from the Russians to Google to Walmart are collecting information, sharing it, passing it around, getting it hacked. And I don't know what's going on with all that, but I do know that they claim ownership of all the data, and I don't have any right to look at it necessarily. So I'm just curious to the, the whole subject of who owns the data and why do the people that own it own it versus the people from whom it's collected. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start, I guess, to say in general, I mean, with the exception of sort of specific kinds of rights under copyright or trademark law, um, nobody owns data. And in particular, actually, when you're talking about facts, in general, no one owns facts at all, so no one. Um, and I'll say uh, that is, by and large, I think a good thing. Um, I think it becomes very, for a bunch of reasons, one, just as a matter of practice, it becomes somewhat difficult to segregate data that is about you versus data that is about someone else. So if you have a, a facts about your relationship with your spouse, let's say, or a, a friend or a partner, um, you know, who is the owner of that data becomes difficult. There's also 
I think obvious sort of free speech problems um, that come up if you say, um, that now I am the owner and can control information that another person may have gained, perhaps quite legitimately, about me. Um, and say, okay, I want to now demand that the New York, you know, investigative reporter turn over um, all the information they may have gathered about me. Um, I'm, I'm sketching very quickly here, but there is a, a complicated interface um, between a lot of sort of free speech values that we're committed to and the idea of, um, of that kind of ownership over factual information uh, or that kind of ownership-like right over factual information. Um, but I'll, others may disagree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think from our perspective, you know, pulling back, you know, there is a problem on the corporate side in many cases, and that it is really important that, you know, consumers have control over what the companies that they, they contract with, you know, um, collect about their activities. Like, you know, one example, um, a lot of internet service providers, you know, Comcast, um, others, um, would like to collect more data about you know, individuals' activities. That could include things like browsing history, for example. It's the ACLU position, and I think the position of many groups, that they shouldn't be able to do that unless you know about it and you opt into it, because it's sensitive information. Um, layer on top of that the fact that we know that some companies have a very cozy relationship with government often, and will voluntarily provide all of this information about you to the government to, to use as they wish. And so, you know, I think um, my answer differs a little bit, you know, um, from Julian's is I, I do think that we need to start thinking about how do we put the control back in the hands of consumers? Um, what do we need from a regulatory standpoint? Um, people should not have to choose between, um, you know, ba their basic right to privacy and, you know, whether um, a, a company collects their browsing history and the ability to use things like the internet, which we all you know, as a realistic matter, require for everyday life in today's world. Um, and, and so I think that that conversation is another one that we haven't been having, but it's important to start having. I guess I should distinguish, I hooked, I hooked onto your choice of words about owning data. Um, I think for various reasons, modeling it that way is maybe not a great idea. Um, that doesn't necessarily right, conflict with, I think, what is driving your question, which is, um, are, there, are there measures we can take that, that try to ensure that um, you know, big commercial entities are stockpiling huge amounts of data. People, um, you know, are made accountable in some way with what they're doing with that and, and how they're transferring it. Right. Um, Can I just add a, a point, which is that you know, when when Nima said uh, giving control back to the consumer, I think that that's I think that's right. You know, our, our privacy regime in in general is is you know designed or intended to. To be designed to give to give to, uh, the control to the individuals about what is done with their data, regardless of whether or not um, it enables them to to actually own the data. And 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 what that means is that in situations where consumers have less choice about whether or not to share the information with a commercial entity and to share very to share information that they would consider private, such as information about where you go, what calls you make, etc. Um, sharing that information with your phone provider, sharing information about every website that you visit um, and, what, and everything that you do online with your ISP, or sharing information about your health conditions and the things that you've asked your doctor about with your healthcare provider, um, then we have these specific privacy laws that deliver uh, a, some greater control to the individual consumer with respect
back to those areas where uh, where we really think that consumers don't don't have a choice but to share that information. And and it's and it's worth noting that in the Stingray context, um, the information that your phone carrier collects from you is protected under the Communications Act, um, and that's what brings us to the complaint that we filed, where we really feel that that law is being violated. Um, and and you know so but then that that. That differ, you know, that's, that's the answer to your question. The law is there and it is being violated. So on that note, let me uh, thank you all for coming and add that while uh, we're uh, big fans at Cato of the, the great libertarian sci-fi author uh, Robert Heinlein, who liked to remind people there's no such thing as a free lunch, at Cato we also say wrong. Uh, and if you will <laughs> join us upstairs, uh, we, uh, we will have some light fare available. Uh, in any event, thank you again for coming. And please join me in thanking our wonderful panelists one last time.